0: Certainly, as a kid, you know, if I didn't get an A in something, I got a B plus in something, or I spelled something wrong in a test, um, I would be punished pretty severely for it. I would be beaten for it. And so, in adulthood, I thought that my worth, my inherent worth, was tied to success.
1: I'm Nathan Maharaj and this is Kobo in Conversation. My guest today is the writer and radio producer, Stephanie Fu. If you're an avid podcast listener, you probably know her work on This American Life, Snap Judgment, as well as 99% Invisible, and Reply All, and Nancy, just to name a few. Uh, And now she's written a book, That's both a memoir of growing up in an abusive and neglectful environment, and it's also an explainer on complex post-traumatic stress disorder, a condition that's not as well-known as it should be, though its effects may in fact be quite broad. The book is called What My Bones Know, a memoir of healing from complex trauma, and I am so glad to have its author joining me today. Stephanie Fu, welcome to Kobo.
0: Thank you so much for having me today. I really appreciate it.
1: The book, as I've said, is many things. Um, we start off in your childhood experiencing your relationship with your parents when you're quite young and growing up. Um, later we're in the office with, with your therapist. You know it's different therapists in fact. Um, we're also at work with you, um, you know, going through some very tough times. There seem to be many places we could have entered this um, this story, uh, this book. How did you decide, to start the book in the painful place where you did,
0: um, I think it it originally did not, or start with my childhood, um, or it started very briefly with my mm-hmm. childhood. I think it was only about maybe twenty pages long, or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I turned that into my editor, you know, I I really wanted the book to not be a trauma memoir. I did not want it to focus on my childhood. I wanted the vast majority of it to um, take place in the healing aspect of it, of me as an adult, because the book is mostly about how to heal from complex PTSD. And so it goes through many different treatments and it goes through you know the effects of my childhood in as an adult and how it's uh, persisted in my life. But My editor was essentially like, we're not going to be able to buy into why you're healing and what Mm -hmm. you're healing from unless you really explain what happened to you. And so, you know, my childhood only comprises about the first 50 pages or so. Mm -hmm. Um, Book is 350 pages, so it's 300 pages of me as a grown person. Mm -hmm. Um, But I, I needed to give that information in order to sort of have the reader understand what it was that I was spending this entire book healing from mm.
1: in in constructing the book in this way because it is unique in its construction as you say it um, the emotional impact of those 50 pages uh, it, it's it's more than it's it's more than its page count I, I felt uh, reading mm. it um, were there were there any other books you could look to as a model for putting together this um, this kind of chimera where you, you really wanted to explain and you wanted to heal and study the healing, uh, but needed this biographical thing in the beginning. And it, it, it felt to me kind of unprecedented though. It didn't read like um, it, it, it read fine, but it was only afterwards looking back at it that I thought, wow, what a, what a unique uh, animal this is. Yeah. I
0: think um... I don't know any books like it, honestly. Um, uh, And that's why I wanted to write it (laughs) because I I couldn't find that book. Um, Mm. I I read a lot of trauma memoirs that focused mostly on the childhood. And I read a bunch of like very scientific, dry uh, trauma books that focused on the adult healing, but not from a first person perspective, more from a scientific perspective. So I wanted to bring all of those elements together.
1: You write that you were an unpleasant person in college. I think you used harsher language than that, but you, you have this, this self-awareness um, about emerging from your childhood as a person that you really didn't like very much. And it seemed to me you came to therapy really early from this desire to change. And I wanted to ask you if you have a sense of that person uh, that you were then who was who was deliberately setting out to create that inflection point in their life.
0: Um, you, you mean the person, like when I was 22 and sort of coming out of my trauma and seeking out therapy for the, or like term therapy for the first time.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I I look back on, on, I mean, and, and maybe I'm just, this is. Probably just revealing too much about myself, but I think of like for me it was you know the 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 stitching kind of came out of my personality in the in my 30s where I realized oh I'm going to have to deal with my stuff. Um, mm. Certainly, I was unpleasant at 22. Like I think that's I think that's a matter of public record to some extent. And it it was it struck me that you would have had the insight and the drive to to seek change uh, in that way.
0: Yeah, I think the real um catalyst for that was being in a relationship in Mm. when i was about 22 23 um and struggling in that relationship because i was like i mean i was very dissociated at that point i think um i was focusing a lot on work i don't know if i was really accessing a lot of uh vulnerable feelings very much and i the guise in which i went to my first therapy session was you know i want to figure out how to love and mm. honestly there's this idea right that your first therapy session is sort of um replicated for all of the subsequent subsequent ones and as a, now i really do feel like my entire therapy journey has been essentially learning how to love and be loved um but i also have a lot of um empathy and sympathy and generous feelings to that 22 year old mm. um, because she was really strong and she was that dissociation existed because she was trying so hard to heal and to be normal and to be successful. And that strength that she must have possessed to come out of such a lonely and traumatic, Childhood and survive and stay alive and maintain relationships. Um, I think that required a tremendous amount of willpower. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, even though I was a very complicated person back then, um, I am still very proud of that person.
1: Mm. Could you could you set the stage a little bit just so the the listeners who haven't read the book yet uh can kind of understand that at 22 sort of professionally where were you at um certainly in a relationship that you wanted to to make uh to make a real go of
0: Yeah um so I had managed to graduate in two and a half years at 20 um because I sort of wanted to you know just, I wanted to get away from my childhood and make a name for myself and become successful, become a journalist really quickly.
1: Mm.
0: And I did manage to do that at 22. I was a producer for a national public radio show, snap judgment. I was working 70 hour weeks, um, producing often 30 minutes of content every week. Um, and, uh, just sort of on my own independent Mm -hmm. trying to survive in this world. And yeah, I just entered a relationship with um, a person that I uh, was afraid to be vulnerable around and to, to care for, but I wanted to figure out how to make that work.
1: Mm. You, your, your ambition, um, to like launch out of childhood and into adulthood is, is, is a real like driving force. And it seems that, uh, that there's a, it, it propels, it seems to propel you, a a, you know, a good, a good distance, but you also have to, you, you express this, this awareness of, you know, reaching the top of your kind of professional, uh, you know, reaching the peak of, of of a professional accomplishment and looking around, specifically in New York, and and kind of seeing the the dread. I think you call it the dread as mm-hmm. as something that's that's powering a bunch of people everywhere. And and I thought uh, I thought that was a, it was an interesting insight to see that you're you're at the top of the pile, and uh, and everyone else who is kind of at the top of their pile is powered by by this 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 negative uh this negative feeling um i wonder do we have a do we have the wrong idea about what success looks like
0: i mean i certainly had the wrong idea about what <laughs> success looks like i don't know if i can speak for everyone i don't know if everyone is driven by the same like intense fear that i was driven by mm. but um, speaking for myself you know, as a, as a child, um, especially in an Asian American community, Mm -hmm. success was the thing that would erase our trauma and our parents' trauma and make our immigration story a success. And so certainly as a kid, you know, if I didn't get an A in something, I got a B plus in something or I spelled something wrong in a test, um, I would be punished pretty severely for it. I would be beaten for it. And so in adulthood, I thought that my worth, my inherent worth was tied to success. I think, you know, I, because, uh, I came from such a dangerous, um, troubled place that I thought, Probably my sanity even was tied mm. to my success. Like the more successful I could be, the more seen and healed I would look. And I had tied that to my happiness as well. And so, but of course, you know, that means that I would produce something or I would get a job or whatever that people liked. And, you know, it would make the rounds on the internet and it would get tweeted around a lot. And that would be great for a day. But What happens the day after that? Well, you're back to square one, you got to do it all over again. And so it was this constant pressure. Um, And at a certain point, I could not take that pressure anymore. And I also, you know, had to grapple with the fact that I was being a workaholic in order to dissociate and not in order to not uh, grapple with the issues that I had left unresolved from my childhood and feeling sort of sad or, I mean, the amor, the dread is an amorphous feeling. It was just sort of a weird, bad feeling that I couldn't quite place. And I was like, if I could just work really hard, then the dread will go away. And I started to realize that the dread was not a normal, uh, feeling that I should have in between stories that I should experience potentially more joy or <laughs> <laughs> relaxation. And so, yeah, I certainly think that, um, uh, having a measure of happiness and success that is so tied to capitalistic output is not sustainable long-term or it was not for me.
1: Mm. And you, you alluded to, um, to, to, uh, cultural and racial identity as part of um, uh, as part of the mix of of your conception of success, and I, and there was a section in the book I thought that was really um, really striking and uh, I was riveted as you, as you looked into uh, this picture we have a of success of of, um, of high achieving children and and you 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 went right at whether this is uh, an artifact of, of a culture of, uh, is this, is there's, is this a negative aspect of, of your Asian American culture? And, and it was, it seemed so, it seemed like scary work because as you wrote it, it seemed like you were, you were open to the possibility that, that you were going to see something really ugly and really tough to, uh, tough to look at. Hmm.
0: Tough to look at in that I belong to a community that was racked by trauma rather than an individual family that was yeah. suffering from trauma
1: yeah that that well the t- the tough part would have been that um, it, it was bound up in racist attitudes that required like unpicking oh I see right like um I think you you tie it back to um, how the myth of the model immigrant mm-hmm. uh, kind of drives a thing and it and then it's a question of well', well then then, who are we as a community if we draw um, value from this perception that has on its other side the this this uh, anxiety that that turns into uh, all kinds of different manifestations of trauma?
0: Yeah, I think it goes back to that fear of vulnerability. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there was this culture of shame growing up of, that we just had to appear to be perfect, Mm. get perfect grades, um, appear to be like the perfect model, like you said, immigrants. Um, But the problem with the model minority, of course, is that it really flattens a population. Um, And I don't know of any population that is perfect and is just functioning absolutely well in America. Um, Mm. Certainly not a population that is um, that has one generation prior escaped things like the Vietnam War and the Korean War, and in my case, the Malian Emergency and the Chinese Cultural Revolution, um, and of course, our parents underwent a lot of trauma, and they passed that down and intergenerationally and culturally, and. I was in a community that suffered from a tremendous amount of trauma and mental health challenges. And that was all invisible because we generally got good grades and because the teachers saw us as the model minority. And so we weren't resourced um, and we were struggling, many of us, not all of us, of course, but me and many people I know were struggling tremendously um, and we weren't able to be cared for. In the way children should be cared for. Um, and I think that was the most painful thing, probably mm. throughout my journey, was just learning about the ways in which institutions and families and individuals failed me because they failed to witness what, in retrospect, seemed pretty obvious some really serious child abuse. <laughs> um, and who would I have been if I had? been resourced earlier, if I had gotten help earlier, if I had been taught earlier that I deserved love and kindness and not to be like brutally beaten and neglected, you know, Yeah. um, that's the painful part I think is, is who would I be if I had gotten a little bit more help?
1: Right. I mean, because as you, I want to, I want to talk about this, the, this, this, it's kind of a grief, isn't it? Um, the the person the person you 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 weren't the person we don't get to be, uh when our when when we experience trauma and that that creates that that kind of break.
0: Certainly, like I was comparing myself as an adult against populations of people who came from a lot more privileged than me, mm-hmm. um, who communicated very differently than my parents communicated, um, or that my communicated my community communicated. Um, and so I think wanting to fit into a very uh, white, upper, upper middle class sort of, you know, Ivy League environment coming from where I was coming mm. probably exacerbated the dread quite mm. a bit because I'm not that person. Um, mm. uh, but I think the true driving force of the dread was not necessarily like what I... The grief of what I could not have been. I think the dread was, uh, the result of unresolved trauma yeah. and just <laughs> triggers and feeling, uh, I was taught that I was not worthy of love. And I, and I think I needed to, um, learn what it meant to love myself mm. in order to ultimately calm the dread.
1: Yeah. So you were interviewed um, for the guardian by poppy noor uh, who says up front that she has a c ptsd complex ptsd diagnosis and and i and and we're you know we're we're well into this this interview and i should say up front i first heard the term complex ptsd in a session with my therapist and we don't have to get in mm. too much into that but that's Uh, Part of what resonated with me about, about your book was, um, what was there were, there were, there were commonalities I could see there was sort of solving riddles, uh, in my own mind. And I, so I have to ask you, um, given that your search for, um, books that explain the condition and and other experts in the area was was a little thin um are you are you now just seeing the cptsd folks coming out of the woodwork uh as you have now written this book and and having gone through the experience of looking for resources on this condition and knowing it was fairly thin and knowing that you now have this book out that you are now on the short list of of books that explain um what this is all about um uh, is, is that beginning to happen yet? The uh, the CPTSD uh, folks uh, everywhere you turn?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And it's yeah. great because, I mean, if you've read my book, you know, when I first was diagnosed, I tweeted about it and I posted it on Facebook and I was like, does anybody out there have this? And nobody responded. And one person tweeted back, like, sounds shitty. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, yeah, I think it is sh-ty. Um, And uh, I felt like completely alone and a freak. Um, and I wrote this book so that other people would not feel that way. Mm. Um, so that other people would understand an individual's struggle, um, to heal and, and, you know, provide them with real techniques and real hope. Um, but ultimately, yeah I've had dozens and dozens and dozens of people with complex PTSD (laughs) reaching out after and I'm like oh look there we are there we are just as I suspected I don't think I'm alone and yeah they're coming from everywhere they're coming from you know places like the Guardian and and NPR and from very high echelons of society as well as you know herbalists and uh doctors and teachers and and uh It's been great (laughs) and very (laughs) affirming for people to say that my book got it right.
1: Yeah. Can you um, explain a little bit about why it was hard to find material on CPTSD? I I think it's got something to do with how how we understand um, mental illnesses and how a mental illness kind of gains legitimacy.
0: Yeah, of course. It's not. Complex PTSD is not in the DSM, which, of course, is the Bible of mental health. It is how we define what is real and what is not real. Um, it, def- it defines uh, treatment plans. It defines how psychiatrists and psychologists and therapists train to heal people with mental illness. It, it uh, determines getting like insurance companies mm-hmm. covering us and and, um, giving us the appropriate treatment. Um, and it's not in the DSM only PTSD is in the DSM and complex PTSD is a distinction they are not willing to make, uh, which means getting treatment for it is really, really difficult because, you know, you will be incorrectly diagnosed if you want treatment and you probably get the wrong form of treatment. Um, most, therapists don't know how to treat complex PTSD because it's not in the DSM. And mm. there's not that much literature on it yet. Um, there's a small handful of books. Again, most of them sort of drier and more scientific. Most of them not actually written by people with complex PTSD or just like not uh, providing a first person narrative. And so my struggle to really find something that Um, you know, I, I traded in first person stories. That's literally been my job for the past 12 years. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I know the power of it. I know how normalizing and humanizing and empathy building it is. And I just needed that so badly when I was first diagnosed. So set out to make it. Yeah.
1: Um, You, you try in the book, you, you go through, um, uh, trying a bunch of different treatments. Um, there's the, there's the one with the eyes. Um, Mm -hmm. um, uh, there was, uh, yin yoga, which, which, uh, which I'm a huge fan of too. I just love stretching for a long time. Um, (laughs) can you tell me a little bit about that pursuit of, of treatment and how you kind of chronicled it, um you know, uh, almost like it felt a little bit like casting about in the dark, but also, you know, you did have, there were some, there were some lights along the way, uh, was therapy that got you a couple steps, maybe here and there. Uh, can you start maybe to tell me about the, the eye one?
0: Yeah. EMDR. EMDR. Um, EMDR. Uh, well, you know, it, it is most commonly used with eyes in terms of like you go and you sort of recount your most painful traumatic incidents, uh, while, moving your eyes back and forth in terms Mm. of looking at a moving light or a finger in front of your face. I felt more comfortable with my eyes closed. So I actually used buzzers and headphones that would buzz my hands left and right and, and beep in my ears. Um, and the idea is that somehow this other stimulation allows you to not enter a triggered state and sort of be able to recount your uh, traumatic incidents with more clarity um, and uh, with a different perspective, and then also to process them in terms of, you know, sending an adult version of yourself back to help that child version. And it was really helpful for me in terms of understanding the horrors of what I went through, sort of like reliving some of the abuse that I suffered and recognizing how not okay it was, Mm -hmm. um, as, as well as learning to sort of comfort that deserving inner child. Um, and I wouldn't say it's a silver bullet. I don't think there is any silver bullet, honestly, when it comes to complex PTSD, but it was certainly a really good, helpful first step in my healing process in terms of recognizing, Oh, you know, I've been, I've been burying some pretty horrible stuff uh, deep down that I'd minimized my entire life.
1: We've been talking a lot about, about trauma, about diagnosing trauma, treating trauma, um, and the book certainly deals with that, but uh, it did something that I thought, uh, I'm not sure I've seen it done before, and that's it represented estrangement uh, in mm. a way that to me felt real. Um, and also then took the reader beyond your, your, your personal experience and, and kind of gave an explanation of it. And I mean, it, and it's particularly interesting, you know, it's, it's, uh, you and I are speaking in the middle of April. Um, this episode will go out, you know, probably days before mother's day. And, and I've been seeing mm. this trend of, you know, people post, you know, happy mother's day. And then there's like a, there's now like a little, like, like a footnotey reference to like, Oh, and even, you know, for folks who maybe are having a tough time or don't have a great relationship with their mom or anything. So there's like this, people are just kind of beginning to grasp that, that this is a condition of some of some uh, relationships. So maybe, maybe as a society, we're starting to get it a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wanted to ask you um, if you could, if you could kind of put into, in, into words, what Uh, What is it we're still getting wrong about estrangement, especially what is, what is, what are we getting wrong about it among folks who haven't experienced that kind of relationship?
0: Um, yeah, so I think estrangement is much more common than Mm -hmm. we previously thought. I think we don't talk about it as much and it's really not studied very much academically at all um except for christina sharp and maybe a couple of more intellectuals um but uh i think that also estrangement is on a spectrum it it is not necessarily people who just haven't talked in 10 years it's also people who like are actively trying to distance themselves um from family members and uh It's a weird thing that we don't talk about it so much because when you start digging and you start asking people, so many families really are like, oh, we don't, we have an uncle that we don't ever talk about or a grandfather or a, uh, you know, I don't talk to my sister. Um, And I think that not talking about it makes all of us who are in that situation feel a little bit more freakish and guilty. I think too, that, you know, I don't speak to either of my parents. And for the longest time, I, I felt horrible about it. And in some ways I still feel guilt over that Um, Mm -hmm. because, you know, your parents gave life to you. They gave so much to you to bring you up. And in my case, you know, they brought me to America. They tried to build a good life for me. Um, But there becomes a certain point at which you're, those relationships can hurt more than they help. Mm-hmm. And there was a certain point at which I had to decide for myself, like I deserve love. I deserve to be loved and I don't deserve to be in a relationship with people who are constantly reminding me of how unloved I am. <laughs> it's just, it, it took too much out of me. Um. So, yeah, I think normalizing that every year. I, I mm. also post on Father's Day and on Mother's Day saying like, hey, yeah. if you don't have a mom, if your mom isn't your blood mom, if you have mother figures in your life, reach out to them. But, you know, if you if you don't have anyone who's mothering you, feel free to stay off social media today.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I have to imagine as you were writing this, um, because, because you are who you are and you've had the career you've had. Um, you must've thought at some point this would work as a podcast that, that you could, that there was an episodic, like, you know, I'll do an hour on, on my personal history and then I'll do an hour on, uh, we'll, you know, we'll do an hour on different treatments. I saw it. Um, why a book?
0: I just didn't have it in me. I was just too burnt out. Hmm. Uh, I mean, I quit my job because well I was in an, an abusive workplace and i was just so burnt out from working in audio for so long and i just wanted to make something on my own and <laughs> i wanted to a, a book seemed like the safest healthiest way for me to be able to work that out and um i liked the editing process a lot more as well <laughs> for a podcast i would have you know a team of like 5 people going over every word minutely in multiple drafts. I'd have to play it out loud for them. Um And there was just something really peaceful and nice in writing it and working on it with just my editor or a few chosen people that I sent it to and they read it in their own time and came back to me with notes. Uh It was a lot better for my mental health.
1: That is a great note that I, I think anyone who's... I, uh, anyone who struggle struggle through writing a book and, and everyone I talk to about it usually says like oh my god it's miserable especially like the first book um apparently what they need to do is first get spend some years podcasting and doing audio editing because that is so miserable <laughs>
0: it's so much worse yeah well I think no I think one of the important things too is I didn't really start writing the book two until two years after diagnosis. Mm. So I was doing a lot of research, certainly, and I was doing all these treatments, um, but I was only writing journal entries. I was not writing with an audience. I would just uh, go to a therapy session and then go to a cafe downstairs and just like do total stream of consciousness word vomit. Um, and then I used all of those journal entries as, you know, a source material when I actually started writing it. But like the the healing came first. Mm. The the writing was not. Really, my catharsis at all.
1: Right. The healing
0: was my catharsis, and that was really important because, like I said, you know, I had tied up my self worth in accomplishment and achievement so much over the years um, that when I when it came to heal, it couldn't be tied to this creative project or success. You know what I mean? It yeah, just needed yeah. to be for me purely.
1: Yeah. So, so it wasn't um, just a drive to unseat. Uh, the body keeps the score from its perch.
0: <laughs> it, n- n- my entire healing process, no, <laughs> no, no. I mean, it was the, for me. The
1: book, I mean, the, the the healing process is for you. The book, though, you know, could be you know could be a, a form of uh, of books or artillery to uh, you yeah. <laughs> know. I will
0: put it this way: if the body keeps the score, is going to be a you know years long national bestseller, perhaps. It shouldn't be accompanied by a book written by a a survivor of complex PTSD Mm. and a woman of color
1: and I'll I'll say for for listeners confused by this the body keeps the score is it has this position as as like the go-to on on trauma uh, it's written by a Bessel van der Kolk uh, who was fired from his job as executive director of the trauma center following allegations of creating an abusive environment so that's that's what we're talking about here it's not, a, not an ideal not an ideal figure to be at the top of 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 uh, of the uh, ladder of expertise on the topic I of think, trauma
0: yeah i think it's complex uh i I don't know him personally. Uh, I've never spoken to him. I know people who are, who are big fans. I I know people who worked with him who not big fans. Mm. So I don't, <laughs> I don't really know the exact situation there. But again, like I just think it's really important that there is more literature on complex PTSD mm. because it needs more nuanced portrayals, like depression or anxiety have lots of literature on them and they have really nuanced there's so many uh celebrities or successful people or you know unsuccessful like depression is not just one thing one person one monolithic thing it is nuanced and people with complex ptsd are just as diverse you know, <laughs> I mean, yeah. everyone on this earth suffers some form of trauma and uh, certainly every culture, every kind of person suffers from complex PTSD. So.
1: You you mentioned uh, a moment ago that, the, that healing was sort of the precursor to, to writing the book, but I also found it really interesting that in the book, you don't kind of present yourself as finished and healed. You really convey a sense of committing to you know, this is an ongoing process. Um, you know, you're not, you're not done. There's no, there's no bow that gets tied on it.
0: Mm-hmm. I think that's true for complex PTSD. Definitely. Because, you know, like I, a trigger for me is loss, abandonment. Mm. Right. And I will never stop experiencing that in my whole life because we are not immortal. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and like, I'm sure I will continue to lose and be abandoned by people my whole life. And I'm going to have to need to deal with that in different situations. If I have kids, you know, there's going to be all these new relationships and new nuances. I'm going to have to manage. It's very much a relational, uh, trauma and like relationships are always changing and evolving and requiring new things of us. Mm. But I think not outside of complex PTSD, if you, if any of us just think that we're done, learning or growing, um, then we clearly have more learning and growing to do. Right. Um, like the painful process of being a human being on this earth requires constant adaptation.
1: Though, though you, you were determined not to write a book and not, not a podcast. Um, I, I have to wonder though, I, I actually read it as an audio book. I, I mean, I listened, I listened to, to, I listened to you read it to me. Um, hey. Which which is always the weird experience because I have to remind myself um, just because I've spent you know ten hours with this person, um, they haven't spent ten hours with me. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah,
1: um, it must be weird. It's very strange. I I believe Michelle Obama and Salman Rushdie are my close personal friends, <laughs> um, uh, to name just a couple. Um, but I wanted to ask about if you were thinking about the audiobook as you made it because there's a section where you have these these wonderful recordings with um with your therapist Dr. Ham mm-hmm. um and and I mean first of all the recordings are are wonderful your 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 the insight you had to 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 work out an arrangement where you could record is 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 beautiful and the way you incorporated into the into the text is is just lovely um mm-hmm. it's just so natural and flowing um and uh And and I I just I just love Doctor Hom. He's the best. I found him such a compelling character. (laughs) Spoke. Um, Tell me a little bit about that those those sessions. I sure I I assume you had tons of tape to go through to get these little nuggets that you worked into the narrative.
0: Yeah, I think I had like thirty hours of tape or something like that. Um, though, uh, probably like actually more like fifteen. That was usable and then well i mean i didn't when i was uh when i was writing the book i did not write it with a radio producer's ear Mm. uh i i mean i guess i probably did because i'm a radio producer and i wrote the book like a radio producer (laughs) but like i I mean i wasn't i wasn't thinking about the audio book let's put it that way when i was Mm. writing um but I was certainly scouring through all of that tape and re-listening to a lot of it, rereading it to sort of um retell that story of what being in that room was like. Um, and I, of course, still had all of the Google Doc transcripts where me and Dr. Hom so I would transcribe um I would record all the sessions, transcribe them immediately after, put them in a Google doc and me and Dr. Hum would go through and mark them up. So I still have those saved in the Google docs of him and me sort of breaking down everything in these transcripts and him us sort of fighting it out in the, in the comments a lot. And it was wonderful. It was such a great experience, honestly. And sometimes when I'm really struggling, I'll go back and I'll go re-listen to some of my old therapy sessions. I think, uh, it's kind of like, going to go back for free (laughs) I get to keep relearning these lessons over and over um and uh I think a lot of people say that seems terrifying (laughs) and and I've heard people be like I would never do that I would never (laughs) re-listen to my therapy sessions and I'm like no you know I felt very cared for in those therapy sessions when we went over them in Google docs, I was able to take like this very radio producery, um, stance on it and like edit my trauma out in this sort of, um, it's like my trauma triggered brain turned off and just my like dissociated work brain turned on, but it was mm-hmm. really helpful in that way. Um, cause I could just see my foibles objectively and work through them. And um yeah I really I also just think that a lot of times they're funny and (laughs) we have like a really nice little rapport going on where he'll call me stupid and we'll make fun of each other and stuff so uh it was it was a delight to write that section of the book honestly it was barely edited the version that exists is almost like identical to the my first draft
1: uh, it, it reads Marvel. It's a delight to read. It's a delight to listen to. I want to thank you, Stephanie, for, for joining us on Kobo and Conversation.
0: Thank you so much for having me. It was a fun conversation.
1: I have been speaking with Stephanie Fu, author of What My Bones Know, a memoir of healing from complex trauma. You'll find it at Kobo and Conversations Home on the web. That's kobocom conversation. Check the show notes for a link. Catch every conversation by subscribing wherever you listen. Cobon and Conversation is produced by me and also this time hosted by me, Nathan Maharaj. Michael Tamblin will be back soon. Don't you worry. And thank you for listening.